what is the simplest, while not being complete, what is the simplest meaning of the word repent? To turn. Amen? So whenever Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, what is he saying? He's saying that your attentions, your ambitions, your life is aimed in a certain direction. But if there is a kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's spirit, not thousands of years in the coming, not thousands of miles distant, but if there is a spiritual kingdom at hand, then you should change the bent of your life and head in a different direction. Amen? The problem is, is that there are people who intellectually know the truth of God and even with their mouths consent and say, yes, Lord. But Jesus said some would God honor God with their lips while their hearts remained far from him. So there are people who intellectually consent and with their mouths consent, but whose lives, for some reason, do not reflect the radical transformation that a turning would result in. And so you have to ask, do we just take the person at their word? Should I just take myself at my own word? Have I come to repentance? Or do we say, God, there are certain promises, fruits, attributes inherent in a certain course that you have outlined in your word. And I will know my claim by the proof of your word. I will not judge your word by my claim. Amen? That's the question that you need to ask yourself tonight. Have I come to repentance? The Bible tells us that we should come to repentance that times of refreshing may come. There is some energizing. There is some renewal. There is some life of God that is held off. There is some storehouse of grace that has your name written on it. And it's already unlocked. But somehow, you cannot avail yourself of those refreshings, of those, that grace of God, until you've come to repentance. Until you've fundamentally humbled yourself, as the song said, that you may receive grace in your time of need. Amen? The Bible says that we should come to repentance so that we would inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if there is an absence, if there is a lack of God's promises in your life, if there is a lack of God's kingdom, His dominion being realized in your situation, then what does that mean? That God's promises are untrue? That they're just for a few? Or does it simply mean that at least to some degree or in some circumstance, you haven't come to repentance? The Bible says, repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that 
There is a Lord already seated on the throne of your life. And that Lord is your will, your way, your timing. It's you. It's your Adamic nature. Amen? The Lord, which is the Spirit, cannot share space with your carnal nature. So if there is a reason that the Holy Spirit has not come into your life, as promised in the Word of God, then it is because you have not come to repentance. There is no gift or promise of God that cannot be released if you would just come to repentance. You've already referred to the scripture I quoted from last week where he says, be zealous and repent. There was a certain threat inherent in that warning. He said, if you don't repent, what was going to happen? Behold, I am coming and I shall remove your lampstand. So repentance can just be to overcome the default nature of things. He says, if you don't repent, not if you rebel against God, but if you just fail to be zealous and repent. If something fails to happen, something fails to roll over inside of you that initiates a course of change, of turning, then by default, you're going to lose out. By default, your lampstand is going to go out. Amen. So you have to ask yourself tonight, you've got to say, God, have I come to repentance? Have I truly turned from myself and come to repentance? Are you waiting on me or am I waiting on you? I'd like to think I'm waiting on you, Lord, because that's much more convenient, isn't it? There are times, there are windows, there are spaces of grace that God gives us. There are periods where he says, do this until I return. This picture, weeping and gnashing of teeth, what does it portray except, oh, I missed it. Oh, God, the disappointment, the, ah. Oh, when does somebody gnash their teeth? Ah. Oh, except when they, they blew it so bad. And they thought they had so much time to slowly pivot increment by increment, degree by degree, until finally they were there. No, you didn't. You had to make a turn. You had to shear off your root at the core and do an about face and head in the opposite direction. And even then, you weren't going to hit the goal on time but God would credit your faithfulness as righteousness to you. But if you haven't turned, then you're not even facing in the right direction. God is calling you to repentance. To really turn. To really just go ahead and be done trying and make the change. Will you slip? Will you fall? We all stumble in many ways. A righteous man falls seven times. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody who has seen in the eyes of their heart, has caught a glimpse of God, who, he's who He is and what He's worthy of. And not only that, they've caught a glimpse of who God has called them to be. And they are running after God with all their might.
There is something inside of them. They are changed. Amen. Scripture keeps coming over and over in my mind from the beginning of this meeting until now where he says, he says, turn from wrong and do right. Then what does he say? Slouch toward the peace of God. Lean toward the peace of God. You see, wrong is disorder. Wrong is anxiety. Wrong is a place without grace. Wrong is you doing it without God's help. Amen? Right is a place with grace and therefore a place of peace where there is no anxiety, when there, where there is no fretting, where there is no unbelief, where there is no whining and complaining about unfairness. Amen? It is a place where there is peace because there is grace in the one who's made the turn, who's humbled himself. So he says, what? Turn from wrong. Turn. Isn't that what we're talking about? Repent. Turn from wrong and do right. It doesn't say that we are leaning toward the grace of God, does it? It doesn't say that we are resting on the grace of God, does it? The peace of God. Amen. He says, turn from wrong and do right. That doing right cannot happen with a lackadaisical attitude. It cannot happen with a self-pitiful attitude, with a whining attitude. That doing right, you are defying the inertia of the fall, the inertia of your own weariness, the inertia of a momentum that you have built up in the wrong direction. To turn from wrong and do right, it takes something. I want you to picture a car in neutral sliding down a hill, okay? And the further it goes, the faster it goes, amen? Now I want you to picture suddenly, maybe that car is going in reverse. Maybe that car is backsliding, are you with me? Sliding down the hill. And suddenly, that car has got to start going in the opposite direction. The force, if you just kick that thing into gear, you're going to hear the gears grind. It's going to jolt you. You're going to get whiplash. To change your life, it takes something. It does not happen slowly or carefully. It happens radically. It makes your head spin. So he says, turn from wrong and do right. Run after the peace of God. Is that paradoxical in your mind just a little bit? We don't think of peace as something that has to be hastily pursued and apprehended, do we? We think of peace as something that just kind of oozes up and all over us. Oh yeah, I feel peaceful now. Is that the peace of God? Jesus told us that he came to bring us peace, right? And he said, it's just the peace you're expecting, just like the world gives it. Is that what he said? No, he said, peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I to you. So there is a peace. There is a resting from our own futile efforts. There is a coming into an empowerment and a grace of God and His Spirit. There is a 
a putting to quiet of anxieties and useless frettings and fears of man. There is a peace that God wants to give us. But it is not a peace that just comes to you. It is a peace that you come to. You say, I don't feel the peace. I don't feel what I want to feel. Well, whose fault is that? Peace is over there, and you're over here. God's saying you need to turn and head the other direction. And you need to run after the peace of God. You need to say, God, i got to get a hold of something that would bring your kingdom, the, the reign, the dominion of the, of the Holy Spirit into my life. Amen. And the secession of all conflict within. So are you repented? Do you have the peace of God in your life? Amen. Paul said, let his peace reign in your hearts. How does peace reign in your heart? When God's Spirit is getting His way and you're okay with it. Amen? When peace doesn't reign in your heart is when you're still trying to get your way in conflict with her getting her way and him getting his way and there is this constant war and tension all the time. But when the peace of God reigns in your heart, there is a, a reign represents a king, doesn't it? It means the Lord who is the Spirit has taken over. And you may be at war, but you are at peace. Amen? You may be running, but you're at peace. You may be striving, but you're at peace. You don't have peace as the world gives. What is the peace that the world gives? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. The peace that the world gives is an illusion. It just helps you ignore reality. The peace that God gives lets Him control and determine reality. Reality is not good, and you're not going to make it good as long as you're not in heaven. Amen? But the peace of the world, it anesthetizes you. It puts you to sleep. It numbs you to reality. But reality is still going on. A little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And behold, your poverty shall come upon you like a vagabond and your destruction as an armed man. So the forces of this world, the forces of violence, the forces of death, they are never resting. They are never sleeping. They are active and they are going to overtake you. So that is not really a peace, the peace that the world gives, is it? The peace of God is to say, look, I did not come to bring peace. Now he's talking about the world's kind. Do you remember when Jesus said this? In Matthew 10, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So he didn't come to bring peace. Is he not the prince of peace? So did he come to bring peace? But not the world's peace. Amen. The peace he came to bring keeps a sword in your hand. And it's the peace of the Lord reigning in your hearts. May the peace of God reign in your hearts. Elsewhere he says in Ephesians, He is our peace who has broken down the dividing wall and made the two one in Him. So we have a peace. But it's not the world's kind of peace. And if you're looking for the world's kind of peace in the kingdom, that looking, that search is going to take you outside of the will of God. 
That, that search, that desire for a certain tranquility, a certain relaxedness, you're in the wrong place because we are at war. And it's going to take you outside. If you're looking to come to the community so that you can have more friends than you ever had before, and you can have more tea parties than you had ever had before, and you can have financial and relationship security like you never had before, you're in the wrong place. That's not what's going on here. We're at war. And yet we have a peace such as the world cannot give. He is our peace. And even though we go through the toughest things, even though we encounter and struggle against lies and sin, amen, and death and disease, we look into each other's eyes, and if we feel the Holy Spirit, we are at peace. And we say, He is our peace, who has broken down every wall. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace, and He is reigning in our hearts. Now, we want to share that peace with you. We want to inherit that promised land of God's kingdom with you. But have you really repented? You shall know them by their claims, Jesus said, right? Is that what Jesus said? You shall know them by their claims. Saul, the nemesis of David, did he ever come and say, I repent? In fact, every time that Saul was ever confronted face to face with his sin, he repented. Go do a Bible study. When Samuel confronted him, now when Samuel wasn't there, and it depended on the internal volition inside of Saul, he did not run after the peace of God and he did not repent. Amen? But as long as there was someone there just putting it in front of him, he would cop to it every single time. And he did it in a compelling, believable manner, didn't he? He fell on his knees and grabbed the cloak of Samuel and said what? I have sinned! With David, he chased David out of the palace by throwing a spear of accusation against him. It was just a spear, but we throw spears of accusation these days. But he threw judgments and hatred and accusation against his brother. When his brother caught up with him, you remember when David snuck into the camp and David was tempted to take things into his own hands and kill Saul? And he didn't because he honored God. Remember, David took the jar and the staff and he stood up on the hill and he said, Saul, my father, here I have your staff and your jar, your drinking jar. He said, if I had intentions of evil towards you, you know I could have fulfilled those desires. But now you judge. May the Lord judge between us whether I am loyal and true to you or not. And Saul, rubbing the sleepies out of his eyes, came and stood in the mouth of the cave. <sighs> oh, wow. And he, he repented. He said, I am, I am the one who's wrong. You are right. I have sinned. You are righteous. You are better than me, he said. Now please come home. <laughs> And let's, let's make everything okay until such time as it rises in my heart to throw another spirit at you. Did David go home with him? No, and neither will God come home with us when we have a partial repentance. So the next time when he takes his cloak and he cuts something, I, I think he takes his, not his cloak, his spear. He takes his spear and he stands and he does the same thing. 
Saul is hunting him down with a whole army. Saul has killed the entire house of the priests who gave David the showbread. Amen? But David goes in, and then he, again, he shows Saul. He says, look, if I had wanted to hurt you, if there was evil in my heart, did I not have occasion? And Saul again weeps, and he says, my son, David, forgive me, for I have wronged you. I have sinned. And does David go home with him? No. And does David rejoice when he dies? David laments and he says, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Amen. Why didn't he go home with him? You could say he, doesn't, he didn't trust human nature. Well, should we trust human nature? Should I trust you? Should you trust me? He said, not the human nature. That's the answer. Did Jesus trust the human nature? No. But did, were they trusting their human nature? No. The human nature is not trustworthy. It is self-seeking. It is dishonest. It is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? The Lord alone can test it and know it. And He knows it's altogether bad. Amen? So when we say that we trust each other, what are we really saying? We're saying that we trust someone's repentance. We trust that this person has truly cut off the reign of sin in their life, and they have borne fruits that prove that the reign of the Spirit is now the reality in their life. And we trust that. How did Jesus say that the Pharisees and the Jews would come to trust Him? Why would the Pharisees and Jews come to trust Jesus? He said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I do nothing of my own initiative. So that's how we trust each other. When we see each other lifted up, bearing the crosses that God has called each of us to, and we see that the flesh is no longer reigning, then we can say, we trust that brother. I trust that sister. And trust is a thing that grows. It doesn't all happen in one moment. It, it grows. You trust more and more as you see someone. Trust is, is something that comes, amen, over time. It's built up inside of us. Amen. Does God trust our human nature? He said, Jesus said that he did not trust any man. He did not entrust himself to any man, for he knew the heart of man. What did he know? That the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Amen. So when I say, are you repented? The key question to even know whether you're on the right track is how will you know that you're repented? Simply because your heart tells you you are? If your heart is the most deceitful thing, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and no one can know it. So can I be exonerated by my own heart, by my own feelings? That is repentance. To say, I don't know the wickedness or deceitfulness of my own heart. But I have encountered God and He has given me some fruits. And by faith, I want to say, I feel like I've come to repentance. But let God bear witness to my life and to my claims, whether they be true or not. Jesus said, if a man bears witness of himself, his testimony is what? Is untrue. 
So when he says that you have to repent in order to be saved, where is the witness of God that you've come to repentance? If you're just claiming you have, then your testimony is false. It is untrue because you bear witness of yourself. But God in his providence has agreed to bear witness for you. He will stand on the witness. He will come to the witness stand and bear witness to your claim if indeed you have truly come to repentance. How how does he do that? Through his Holy Spirit, he bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. So he has given his spirit to his people. And when you stand and make a claim or when you talk and cavalierly talk about whether you're saved or not, you're not saved. How can you say that you're saved unless God has borne witness to that truth? Just claiming it? Did the Pharisees not think they were saved? He said that they would kill the Lord of glory and tell themselves they had done God a service. How do I know that I'm saved? You don't. You let God know it, and you let God testify to it. And when God has spoken, then you know it. And you say, I do not bear witness of myself, but another. There is another who bears witness, and his testimony is true. So here's how God is going to give witness to your claim. His Holy Spirit is going to be in the room, and people are going to feel the presence and the Spirit of God with you when you make the claim. He's going to agree. The Holy Spirit is going to speak through you. and People are going to feel it, and they're going to hear it. That's one witness. And then there are going to be fruits befitting repentance. If you have the claim, but you don't have the witness of fruits, then you have not come to repentance. And you say, well, what are those fruits? Well, the first is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That is the first fruit of repentance. Amen? Now, there will be fruits of righteousness that follow, but the fruits of repentance are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. When you have fallen, when you have failed, and a sin has taken hold of your life, you have been taken You have been deceived and duped and taken by a sin. And you claim that you've come to repentance for it. Where is the brokenness? Where is the contrition? Where is the fear and trembling? What does he say? The mouth of Isaiah and the mouth of David, repeated by Jesus. What does he say in the mouth of Malachi? Rend your hearts and not your garments? Amen. Come to the Lord, and He will have mercy. To our God, and He will abundantly pardon. Amen. What does He say in the mouth of James? He talks to the double-minded man, the man who justifies himself. And then He gives us a command. He says, weep and lament. Mourn. Have you ever seen anybody weep for the death of someone they loved? Have you ever heard someone howling in their room because of the shock of losing a loved one? The Apostle James commands you, lament, weep, and wail. Have you wailed before God? Have you wept before God? Let your laughter be turned to mourning 
and your joy to gloom. Does this sound like the promise of the New Testament? Does this sound like the Jesus you've always heard about? Yes, indeed it does. It's just the truth about him instead of the false that has no fruits to bear witness to it. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What are the next words that he says? What does all this equal when you behave like this? What does it equal? In other words, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due season. Amen. And what is David, how does David and Isaiah put it? The sacrifices of God. Every time someone sinned in the Bible, what was required? A sacrifice, right? This began with Cain and Abel, right? But the sacrifices God requires, is it a goat? Is it a sheep? Is it a calf? Is it a bull? What is it? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. This notion of God not despising it, what is, it, what is that referring to? That's talking about favor, the grace of God. Did he despise Cain's sacrifice? Does he despise your claim to repentance that has no fruits in keeping with it? Yes, he does. Cain brought vegetables, and so do you, when there is no witness of blood, the blood of brokenness, the blood of contrition. The book of Hebrews says that the sacrifices, that the fruit of our lips is a sacrifice to God. Amen. Jesus said that we should rend our hearts and not our garments. He quoted the passage in the minor prophet where he says that. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So I ask you again, have you come to repentance? There are the positive things. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you don't have the dominion of the King, the kingdom of God in your life, if you don't have the peace of God reigning in your hearts, you may have entertained turning, but you haven't turned. When you turn, you do an about face. You're heading in one direction. And all of a sudden, you're heading in the opposite direction. That means your life already has a bent, a direction. Just like a bow bent in a certain way, you have to bend it in the opposite way. And you say about yourself, I don't know how not to think that way. That's the way I've always thought. If you don't learn how to unbend and think the opposite way, you're heading toward the same fruitlessness you've always had. I, that's just the way I am. I don't know how to be any different. If you don't know how to unbend that bow and become different, then you're not repented and you're going to head in the, toward all the fruitlessness you've always had. When someone changes their direction, they change everything about the way their life has been heading thus far, about the way they know things, about the way they do things, about the way they say things, and they start going in the opposite direction. Amen? They were sneaky, filthy. They become vulnerable and clean as they break their alabaster jar. Their broken spirit and contrite heart, God does not despise. 
if they were proud and judgmental toward other people, they become so humble as to almost appear diffident. And the last person in the room to say anything harsh about another. If they were complacent and self-protective, they become the most energized, motivated people who are willing to put their skin at risk every step of the way. They change. They become the opposite of what they've made themselves thus far. They undo the process that began at birth and has culminated up to now, in now. Amen? They undo that. They go all the way back to birth and they begin to let God refashion their life in a very different direction and with an entirely different bent. And what am I talking about? Jesus picked the most shocking term anyone in the world had ever heard of to describe this change that's got to happen. This undoing of everything that you've made yourself in order to become something different by the hand of God. He called it being born again. What a humbling, foolish thing to think that you have to rewind all the way back to birth and start over. Take nothing for granted. Accept nothing as a given or the right way. But rewind all the way back to the beginning and say, God, I want to be a new creature. I want to be a new creation. I want old things to pass away and all things to become new. Amen? That's what God wants to do. That's repentance. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. It hurt the mind of poor Nicodemus. Have you ever heard something, a math problem or something that was so complex that in trying to understand it, it almost hurt physically your brain? But have any of you ever felt that way? That's how Nicodemus felt when Jesus used these words. It was like, I can't get my mind around that. You'll never get your mind around it. Your mind is the agent of knowing. And in order to be born again, it's got to stop that. And you've got to let God be the agent of knowing. Your mind is the only witness you've got. And you've got to shut him up and call the Lord Jesus to the witness stand. Amen? You've got to call the, the fruits that are in the Word of God to the witness stand. You say, well, that feels like letting go. That's scary. Yeah. It's actually more than scary. It's, it's called dying by some. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So when we say, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, this is what we're talking about. It's got to be a creation of God. It can't just be something of my decision. Amen. God wants us to turn from wrong and do right. He wants us to run after the peace of God. Amen. He wants us to be zealous and repent. 
He wants us to humble ourselves. He wants us to feel the offense that our sin really is to God. The stench that our sin really is to God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said, there are people who've had bad things happen to them. Tower fell on some in Siloam. Herod murdered a bunch of others. And he said, do you think that your fate will be any better? He said, unless you repent, you will lose out. You will perish in exactly the same way as they. See, repentance is not some motion that we mimic from the Word of God. Repentance is taking our compass that has said all of our lifetime that due south was north, and repentance is making due north true north. Amen? Repentance is your only chance to navigate your way out of the bondage, out of the, the maze of this Babylon, of this confusion, of this world, of this sin that so easily besets. Amen? It's your only chance. And if you're going to try to do all that with your old instruments, with your old witnesses, with your old ways of knowing, you're hopeless. You can't do it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, the Bible says that it is God who grants us repentance unto, unto death. Repentance is a death. Does it lead to death? No. Brother, sister, he says God grants us repentance unto life. What you currently know of God is like death compared to what you're going to know of him once you stop fighting him and you let him turn you around. God wants to give you life. God wants to fill you with refreshing and life. Can you rend your heart and not your garments? Can you honor him with your heart and not merely your lips? Can you lament and wail? Can you let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom until under God's hand? What does it mean to humble yourself under God's hand? God's hand is stretched out. Amen? God's hand is showing the sin. God's hand is revealing the bondage. And what he's saying is you've got to put yourself under that hand. You've got to say, God, what you're saying, what you're speaking, what you're revealing, that's me. And you come position yourself under God's hand. And you let the weight of God's truth and conviction, you let it press you down. Down from your high horse. Down from your arrogance, your swagger, your complacency. You let that hand press you down, down, down. You let God's hand be heavy upon you. You let God humble you, which is to say you let God's word and God's spirit bring you down. Amen. And when you're down there, crushed, broken, contrite, you say, God, I don't have anything to give you. I don't have any excuses to make. I don't have any other way of seeing it or any better way of explaining it. God, 
I see the truth. And all I have to offer you is my brokenness. And he says, but your broken spirit and your contrite heart, these, my son, I will never despise. Amen? You kind of let you, you got to put yourself under God's hand. His hand is not so short that he cannot save. His ear is not so dull that he cannot hear. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear you when you pray. You see, you got to put yourself back under his hand, under the weight of conviction that comes through his word. Amen? It's what the apostles prayed now, dear Lord. Stretch out your hand to work both wonders and signs through, your, through the name of your holy child, Jesus. And that we may speak boldly. So when people speak boldly the truth of God, that represents God's hand being stretched out. It's extended out there. And there are some people who say, oh my God, that does not look good. This is going to be hard, but I am running to that hand. I am putting myself under the weight of God's truth, believing that he only tears down in order to build up. He only humbles in order to exalt. He only empties in order to fill. He only asks you to lay down your life in order that he may give you abundant, eternal life that can never be taken. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You say, this is so radical. This is so painful. Well, you want to change. You wanted to be a different person. And if you want an adjustment, go to a mechanic. If you want to be a new creation, come to the King of Kings and the one who created the worlds with the voice of his mouth. 